really, really crappy human beings, right? Do you understand what I'm saying? Make sense? If they trust Christ, right, if this is supposed to make them something new, something different, why are they so seemingly horrible? (laughs) They just seem very horrible. Now, I don't want to elaborate too much on that because really I think that's what the Bible is going to speak to tonight. But it's a great question, and it's, it's a great argument to question. A couple of great things. If you, if you don't have a copy of Christianity, um, I would get one. It's really good. And even if you want to start at the end in these last two sections, it's really awesome. He makes some great arguments. For example, one is you don't know a person, right, just by, by seeing them or observing them. Right? So someone could be a Christian, um, and they could cuss like a sailor, and they could uh, smoke and drink, and, and you don't feel those behaviors are, are what we would call good behaviors, but you don't know them enough to know where did they start? Where has God changed them? How has he grown them? Unless you really know them, you really can't make a good assertion there. This is just one of many good points you would elaborate on in a reasonable way to say that that question, even in and of itself, isn't, isn't really a good question. You can't really base that. You can't say, well, I know Joe. Joe doesn't know God. Joe, Joe, Joe doesn't think there is a God, and he's a really great guy. He's nice to his kids and his wife. Um, he, he speaks kindly and, and appropriately, uh, right. How much more amazing might Joe be if he understood the gospel of Jesus Christ and grace, right? That even in his failures, there's love from a holy God. Like you see, you can't just ask the question, state the question as your argument against Christ. And ultimately what, what C.S. Lewis says is when it comes back to it, when you peel away the layers of, of even that question, right? You actually have to come face to face with the reality of, is that going to be the question I hang my hat on if before a holy God I'll have to stand someday? The hypocrisy of others. It's actually kind of a way in which we end up measuring how good we are personally. The best part about humanity is if you feel bad, don't worry. You can just look and find somebody else who's worse, right? At least I have not, we had a little interlude there. At least I haven't killed anyone and eaten them, right? I'm not as bad as that guy, right? Sure, I cheat on my taxes, and yes, I yell at my parents, and yes, I maybe I steal time at work. It's a big deal. Everybody does it. At least I haven't beaten my wife or fill in the blank. We can always look for some sort of other morality. Um, but the reality of what the situation is, in order to be... A Christian need to be a new man, and it's not for any of us to necessarily judge how good or bad someone is being at a new man that Christ has made them. We'll talk more about that in the Bible Um, when we open it up, when we crack it open. The next section is called The New Men. So, in fact, not just good people, but the new men. Uh, What's uh, what's really cool about this section is when you open it up, C.S. Lewis starts talking about an example, and what he wants to use is evolution, he wants to use evolution as an example in the beginning of this section, which sounds kind of contradictory for someone inside the church to take something that actually would be what would be a more scientific idea of, of species development in evolution, right, in or, an origin theory like evolution, and use that as an example to understand um, what it means to be a new man. But in reality, what he'll do is basically say this. When you look at evolution, right, and you think of the things that existed, you would think that the next step in evolution would not have been you and I, right? Think about um, giant armor-plated dinosaurs, right, that are, are practically indestructible, right? And you see these things just like they go where they want, they do what they want, they're pretty huge and awesome. You would think some sort of hybrid of that maybe 
would be some sort of, but in reality, what happens is something so frail and tiny and insignificant, but with a brain that could have capacity would have, was the new step in evolution. So let's ponder that, right? Just think about that. And then we can talk about how evolution might not be the best way to go in your origin theory later. Um, but, but when you ponder that idea that the new step was actually not something similar to the previous step, but something completely different. It was absolutely out of the ordinary, right? That that next piece for people in their evolutionary idea was going to be something not anything like what they would have thought would be the dominant, thought, dominant, dominant train of development in the natural order. And so what he says is, what if, uh, as people look around and they think, if they, if they actually, well, if you actually want to grasp a hold of evolution, you would think, what is the next step? And what he wants to actually kind of put on us is, what if that next step has actually already happened? Right? What if, what if the, the absolute and ultimate advancement of man has already occurred? He's going to lay out for you in this section just some ideas about how that, 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 ap- that ultimate Reality for man is actually seen in the salvation that Jesus Christ gives and brings. That's the new man. And it's a very interesting concept. Now, he's not trying to run evolution to its natural course and saying this is the pinnacle. What he's just using it as an example to think through what the new man might be like. Um, just real quick, I'm going to give you a couple of thoughts from the book, and then we're going to open the Word, which is where we're going to spend not that much time, but as much as we need to. Uh, He says this in this section, on this view, the thing has happened. The new step has been taken and is being taken. Already the new men are dotted here and there and all over the earth. Some, as as I have admitted, are still hardly recognizable, but others can be recognized. Every now and then one meets them. Their very voices are, and faces are different from ours, stronger, quieter, happier, more radiant. They begin where most of us leave off. They are, I say, recognizable, but you must know what to look for. They will not be very like the idea of religious people, which you have formed from your general reading. They do not draw attention to themselves. You tend to think that you are being kind to them when they are really being kind to you. They love you more than other men do, but they need you less. We must get over wanting to be little princes. We must get over wanting to be needed in some goodish people, especially women. I didn't write this. Uh, that is the hardest of all temptations to resist, the idea that we need to be needed. It's actually true for men and women. So, but They will usually seem to have a lot of time. You will wonder where it comes from. When you have recognized one of them, you will recognize the next one much more easily. And I strongly suspect, but how should I know, that they recognize one another immediately and infallibly across every barrier of color, sex, class, age, and even creeds. In that way, to become holy is rather like joining a secret society. To put it at the very lowest, it must be great fun. Great fun. This idea that stepping into Jesus, right, makes you a new man, right? Not religious, not perfect in your actions, not clean necessarily in the way you may behave, but a new man. So all these descriptions unpacking for us, this idea that we have an idea of what someone who knows Jesus is, but maybe that's just a religious idea. Maybe it's something different, but that... When you see someone who knows Christ, you know something's different about them, even if you don't know what it is. And that perhaps they would know and be able to recognize each other almost instantly because of that difference inside of them. It's just an interesting, interesting concept. He talks about salt, too. This idea that if you were to take salt for the first time, right? Let's say you went to a culture that never had salt. And you were to give someone salt. They were to take the salt and they were to eat the salt. Whoever's just had straight salt. All right. Delicious amazing, you loved it, you wanted to eat more salt, right? 
Like you were like, why don't I just pour this into my coffee? Right? No? See, <laughs> what if you were to tell that person who then had that salt and was like, this is really strong and overpowering, kind of, kind of harsh, little, little, I don't, I don't know if I like this. Well, we put that in all our food. <laughs> they would think perhaps, right? And this is what he would argue that, that the food in that culture, in your culture, you crazy person, tastes harsh and overpowering and, and really they wouldn't want it ever. But see, unless you take that salt and put it into food, you don't realize that that salt actually expands and, and embellishes the natural flavor that is in the food you're putting in and actually accents that food. If you're just to eat salt, you don't want it ever again. But when you put salt in the context that we use it, suddenly that salt makes that food that much more amazing. And it's a great understanding of kind of this, this idea of a new man. It is something like that with Christ, that with Christ in us, the more we get what we now call our, what we now call ourselves out of the way and let him take us over the more truly ourselves we become. See, there is so much of him that millions and millions of little Christs, all different will still be too few to express him fully. He made them all. He invented them as an author invents characters in a novel, all the different men that you and I were intended to be. And in that sense, our real selves are all waiting for us in him. It is no good trying to be myself without him. The more I resist him and try to live my own way, the more I become dominated by my own heredity and upbringing and surroundings and natural desires. In fact, what I so proudly call myself becomes merely the meeting place for trains of events which I never started and which I cannot stop. What I call my wishes become merely the desires thrown up by my physical organism or pumped into me by other men's thoughts or even suggested to me by devils. Eggs and alcohol and a good night's sleep will be the real origins of what I flatter myself by regarding as my own highly personal and discriminating decision to make love to the girl opposite to me in the railway carriage. Propaganda will be the real origin of what I regard as my own personal political ideas. I am not in my natural state, nearly so much of a person as I like to believe. Most of what I call me can be very easily explained. It is when I turn to Christ, when I give myself up to his personality, that I first begin to have a real personality of my own. This idea that when we look at ourselves and think we are incredibly unique, in fact, you can see this in culture all the time, right? Um, we, in fact, most of us were, most of us in this room are young enough to know when uh, the idea of the gothic movement started right who understands when i say gothic or goth you know what i'm talking about yeah right and here's this idea i'm going to be a goth right i'm going to dress this way and i'm just singling them out because i think we can identify them it's not that they are evil or wrong it's not what i'm trying to say but we can pick it out right uh i wear black clothes sometimes oversized black nail polish i don't look at you in the eye i don't talk to you um i am my own individual in this way right here's what happens somebody becomes a goth to be individual and then 3,000 other people become a goth to join them and then suddenly they have their own Facebook page and their own Facebook groups and suddenly they can have meetings and discussions and suddenly to be a goth is actually not something that you are personally, individually, but rather it's something everyone is, right? Pick the other thing, right? Hipster would probably be the most recent one, right? I wear work boots even though I've never touched a shovel, something like that, right? (laughs) Um, I have a really awesome beard, not because I can't shave or can't afford to, but because it's trendy, right? No offense, brother. (laughs) He has a good beard though, right? It's pretty awesome. 
Yeah. Um, but this idea that, that, that hipster, right? And then it's this thing, right? I reject, uh, I reject uh, Bud Light because it's mass-produced, so I drink. <sighs> no, PBR is the same problem. Uh, no, it is not. It's not hipster. Hipster beers are microbrews. Are we having a problem here? Microbrews. No. Confused hipsters that don't know what. <laughs> Look, now I'm defining hipsters. Oh, my gosh. The whole idea, though, that I am, I am, we are hipsters and we are kind of outside the norm. And then suddenly what happened, right? Suddenly everybody became a hipster. So what was the norm? A hipster. <laughs> this idea that we are not, <laughs> we are not, we are not any more really our own person until in reality we're made new. And in Christ we can be made new. And suddenly what happens is we can be a completely new person, completely different and completely changed. We'll see that. We're going to see it so much from this, from the scripture. I'm just highlighting some points for those of us that have finished out. He ends the book this way. Last point here, titled Giving Up. The reality of being a new person is to start with you and I actually giving up who we think we are. Um, He says this. This is actually how he ends his book. The principle runs through all life from top to bottom. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorites, favorite wishes every day and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Submission he's talking about is submission to God, submission to Jesus Christ. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find him, and with him, everything else thrown in. Um, it's such a true statement, and I think until we open up the word and we see it in context, maybe you don't get it. So here's what we're going to do. Two passages, Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, and Matthew eleven twenty through 30. They're going to be up on the screen. If you don't have a Bible or if you're like, I can't find it, that's okay. They're going to be up on the screen. But look, I brought my paper version. I'm going to flip just like everybody else. We're going to be in Ephesians 2 first. Ephesians 2, starting in verse 11. So you're going to Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians. Right before Philippians, starting in the New Testament there. All right. We're in Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 11, verse 22. 11 through 22 says this. Therefore, this is Paul, all right, so the author. This is St. Paul, depending on your background, how you would know him. Um, Paul's one of the greatest missionaries uh, after Christ to reach into the world. In fact, you and I really sit here largely because of a vision Peter, St. Peter would have had, um, and then the work of Paul going out and taking the gospel to the Gentiles. Because, I don't know, is anybody of Jewish lineage in here? No, cool. So all of us in his room are here because the gospel went out to the Gentiles. If you're not Jewish, you're Gentile, just basically means not Jewish. (laughs) That's more or less the idea. All right. So he went out and he was proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. Uh, Never went well for him. Actually, he usually got beat pretty bad. Ephesians 2.11 says this, talking to the church at Ephesus, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision. All right. That we're not doing circumcision tonight. We don't time by what is called the circumcision. Okay. So think 
irreligious and religious. We'll do that. The circumcision being the religious, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Right? So before Christ came, the position of the Gentiles was outside of Judaism, right? Outside of Israel, not a part of the nation that God had actually set up since Genesis to be his chosen people among the world. Now, one of the things Israel was supposed to do was to actually show God to the world. And then they were, they, they were actually supposed to let people join and come in through pros- proselytizing, which is a weird word. If you have any questions about that, you can ask them, right? They didn't do the best job of that. They just didn't. Kind of like the church now doesn't do a good job of it. All right. And, and he was telling, he's telling them, you were alienated from that family. You were, you were by their circumcision, which was the sign of God's covenant, God's promise to his people, right? That he would keep them and make them and hold them and save them. You weren't a part of it. You couldn't be a part of it. That wasn't where you had been placed, but there's even greater news than that, right? Cause that's, that's the one side. The verse 13 starts with a great word. It says, but, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create himself one new man. Whoa, we talked about that one new man in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are, who were far off and peace to those who were near for through him. We both have access in one spirit to the father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself, being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. Here's what he says. It wasn't just religion, right? It wasn't just religious people that Jesus came to speak to. It was also irreligious people. In fact, what, it, what this passage actually tells us is even the nation of Israel, the, the chosen nation of Israel that God had called out to be a light to himself, Jesus actually come to draw them to God. And then all those outside of the nation of Israel, the Gentiles, all of us numbered in this room, Jesus came to draw them to God. And not by religion. See, the reason you can throw the new death in there in the title is because of this. Predominantly what happens is you and I have an interaction with Jesus Christ. Now you're either going to reject him or accept him. And, and, and what happens is often we'll accept him. And then we'll sit in a church service and someone will teach us And since I was a small child, I remember being taught some form of righteousness through my behavior. Somehow I needed to be, I needed to be a good boy. I was an awesomely good boy. I was really good at being good, right? Um, All the adults told me I was a good boy and I was in a church with old people. So they told me I was a good boy until I was like 20, like I just kept, oh, you're such a good boy. You're a good, neat little Christian boy. And that's how I thought somehow we had to do these things to be made righteous. Like you have to do good things when you have a, a faith in Christ. 
Because if you don't, maybe you don't have faith in Christ. There's this overwhelming behaviorism that I was taught. Here's how the new death comes in. See, if I trusted Christ, I had new life, but then I started to be good. You know what I found out? I could look super good on the outside, but inside I knew it wasn't good. Inside I knew it was a lie because there were things that other people didn't know about me. I was actually evil that I could, I could look really good to everybody and they would call me a good boy. But inside, right, I was on fire. I didn't feel like I could tell anybody. We can't talk about our, we can't, we can't be failures together. We can't, we can't let people know that we have sinned and that we need repentance. And that's the culture in which the church predominantly lives and sits and dwells. And it's why, understand, you'll see a church leader, right? Maybe you've had this experience or you've, well, you've seen it on the news, right? A church leader will, will look great, generous, loving, kind, caring on the outside. They're a deacon. They lead Whatever, they'll, they'll teach, um, I'm totally blanking out on things that people teach. They'll teach the new members service. They'll teach baptism, right? Um, maybe closer to home, they'll, they'll, teach, um, they'll teach the catechism. They'll, they'll, they're, they're leading and they, 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 they administer communion and, and it's great and that's awesome. And the next thing you know, they have another wife and they've left the state and they live somewhere else. And you're like, what happened? I don't understand. Well, see, they had told, been told they needed to behave a certain way and be a certain person in order to be in Christ and be a part of the church. And the reality of it was they knew, like everyone in the room knows, is you can't just be that. You can't just be behavior. You can't just be these things. See, what happens is no one ever stopped him and ever engaged with him in a real way where he could say, you know what? Um, this is a great analogy that I heard from a great pastor. This light switch isn't working in this house. I can't get this light to work. I don't know what it's supposed to do. I know it's supposed to turn this light off. Can you help me get this light switch working? Instead, what happened was he just went off and he started just screaming, my house is on fire. Now, if he had stopped when the light switch wasn't working and talked to somebody, been open, been able to be hurting and broken and transparent, and it could have been, it could have been saved and the house wouldn't have burned down and he wouldn't have left a wife. And, do you understand? Am I making sense? So what happens is you can be part of the new life. You can get new life. You can be made a new man and then get stuck into the idea of religion and experience the new death. (laughs) That somehow you have been saved to shrivel up and die inside because you can't be broken and hurting. Instead, you must look good and clean. That can't be what we will be as a church or we will never be the church. Understand? And so what, what we read here is that Jesus came to make us new men, right? Not just the religious and the irreligious, both together, tearing down commandments and laws and a dividing wall that separated religious people and irreligious people. And that no longer is it do these ordinances so that you can be seen as God's people, but follow this God-man who came and saved you from your unholiness. That's what Jesus did. That's the reality of it. Follow him, and he will make you a new man. But, but even, even beyond that, um, anybody in here ever heard of King David? Anybody? Any takers? All right, uh, King David, uh, he's, <laughs> you probably know him of one of two ways, right? Um, give me something you know about King David. How about his catchphrase, or the Bible's catchphrase for him? King David was... 
a man after God's own heart, right? Um, how about something else you know about King David? What's one of King David's, there's a couple, what's one of King David's greatest actions that you know of in the scripture? When he defeated Goliath, right? Coincidentally, Goliath was a really tall guy. Giant. How about something else? What else do you know about David? Any other good stories you know about David? <laughs> that's not that's that, and that's usually the other one, right? He killed a giant, and he saw a naked lady having a bath on his rooftop, and when any had sex with her, got her pregnant, and killed her husband. <laughs> and yet, his catchphrase in the Bible doesn't change, right? We still know him as a man after God's own heart. What do we do there, right? He's obviously broken and a sinner. He actually says something. This isn't going to be on the screen. This is from Psalm thirty-one. You can turn there if you want. If not, I'm just going to read it real quick and move on. Just hear these words from a man who was called the man to God's own heart, and I think you can really understand them. This is from a time in his life when enemies are pressing in, and he feels overwhelmed, and, and it, it's such an echo for us to understand, even in the context of an idea of having freedom, but being a new man, but also because experiencing the new death and this idea of behaviorism or some sort of way we have to live. Um, Psalm 31, just two verses, 9 and 10, it says this, Be gracious to me, O God. O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. That is the the words of a man who is crushed by circumstances outside and his desires on the inside. When confronted with a holy God, and he's a man after God's own heart, and then he wrote these words down. I don't know if he made a mistake, right? I don't know if he realized that God was going to be like Bible, right? And then all of a sudden we get to read them now, and the man for God's own heart is now crying out to a God that he needs grace because he is wasting away internally in his bones from his own iniquity. Iniquity, by the way, is that thing where we have a bent towards something inside of us, whatever that is. It's, it's often different for everybody except for guys, right? Uh, and guys, our iniquity usually is we're bent towards anger or we're bent towards lust, and it just seems to be the way we go. <laughs> now, ladies, you can multitask, so you get to be iniquity in a billion different ways because you can do multiple things at once. Guys can't. We can, like one thing at a time. But he writes these things down. It becomes Bible. Read them today, right? My iniquity is wasting away inside of me. My bones and my flesh, they feel it. The man after God's own heart, can we feel that way? Paul's going to do the same thing in Romans. I'm not going to read it. But if you read Romans, in fact, if you read Romans like 8 through 11, if you, if you grab a Bible, steal ours, read Romans 8 through 11, you'll read this guy, St. Paul, who like you'll see venerated in, at the Catholic Church, usually have at least one statue to him. Pretty amazing guy, St. Paul. Um, and, and you'll read that he'll say things like, um, I know what God wants me to do, and, and he gives me his spirit, and I feel that desire, but then all I see myself doing is not that. Like, I know I should be kind and gracious and loving. I find myself being angry and, and sarcastic and hateful. I don't, I don't know. And he comes to the end and says, but grace be, thanks be to God, that in my flesh, in my body, I find myself fighting against God. And in my spirit, he has saved me and cleansed me. It's this beautiful picture, right? Paul and David, two pretty important guys. There's a, there's, that's actually more. In fact, the best part about the Bible is it's full of guys that are just, just jacked up. <laughs> and God seems to use them. How great news for us. Let's wrap it up here in Matthew. You know what? I, I lied. No, we'll wrap it up. It's too late. Matthew 11. This is Jesus. 
Let's end with Jesus. We're going to walk to communion. What's Jesus going to tell us? What kind of hope is there for us as a new man? What is Jesus going to give us that helps us move beyond these concepts? Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30. Should be, yep, up on the screen in case you don't have a Bible. It says this. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So here's what Jesus is saying in that passage. He's saying this to you. Whether you know Jesus or don't know Jesus, here's what I want, I want you to, to walk through with me. We can acknowledge around us, right, that the world is incredibly broken, that nothing seems to work correctly. Am I right? Uh, I don't know if you've driven a car. Tends to break down, right? Uh, that thing that you were given as a task at work that seems almost impossible to get done because everything else that's supposed to happen in order for it to happen just seems to fail, right? Right? Uh, like my hair, I have to have hairspray to make it look this average, <laughs> right? Everything that we want to go a certain way doesn't go that way, right? Can we all agree the world is broken? Not, not only is the world broken, but even inside of us, we are broken. That Though we know there are things we should and should not do, we tend to do the things that we shouldn't do and not do the things we know we should do at any given time, depending on what will help us look and or feel the best at the time. So here's something we believe in Mission Day Church. We believe that it's, it's, one, it's really a, it's a distinctive that all Christians should have, that Christian hedonism is real. In fact, if anybody should be about hedonism, it should be Christians. You know, what, you know what hedonism is? Anybody know? It's very simple. It is the pursuit of pleasure. That's what hedonism is. It's horrible resorts named it, and they don't understand it at all. Christian hedonism is that God has created everything for his good and glory and our joy. And when we understand everything that he has made as the great creator, we understand how it actually works. Because he created it. That's why your watch came with instructions because some guy put it together and made it to work in a way. And if you don't have the instructions, you're not going to be able to really use your watch. Right. You understand what I'm saying? And then you lose the instructions and you just throw the watch away because it's useless to you. Unless it's a simple one with just one little spinny. That's okay. God says, this is how it works. All right. So the world is broken. Now we've gotten there through our own awesome efforts, right? We have, Broken the world. See, God made it good for his glory and our joy. And what we said is, what if we twist this and make it about our glory? Right? Let's keep the joy. We want our joy. But then if it's not about our glory and our joy, maybe you don't get any glory, God. And it's, it's actually just us. It's me. I get my glory and my joy. I get both of those. And since then, all of us have been about our own glory, which is actually about nobody else's glory. But there's a lot of people. You see how that works? Do you follow me? A lot of people about their own glory, not caring about everyone else's glory. All right. And then what God says, right, instead is, you're never going to get there. You're not going to be able to do it. So I will, I will help you. I will, I will save you from this horrible, awful mess. And so inside, I'm broken. And the world is broken. And, and it's 
yet when I walk towards Christ and I see the world as it is, suddenly I see that if God creator created everything to work together in a certain way, and if I start to pursue the way that God created it, everything seems to work as it should. And so here is the good news, right? Here's this idea of who Jesus is. So from the beginning in Genesis, and we see that, that our glory is what we're after and everything is broken all the way to the gospels. Right? God has tried to call the people, lovingly, graciously pull the people to himself that they could pull towards the world, but the reality is it's all bent. They, he's given them pictures and, and symbols that they should understand, like the sacrificial system. By the way, if, if you're in a place that does a sacrificial, sacrificial system, just leave it because that's gross. All right? It's nasty. Like if you want to be forgiven for sins, you've got to spill blood. You've got to offer this goat and that, that goat and maybe turtle doves and some sort of weird. It's just blood everywhere, and it's, it's a mess. And we don't do that anymore because, see, as he was trying to show them that sin costs, that, that we live in a broken way and we go for our glory and that costs us something, he said, no, it's going to cost me something. So here's what's going to cost me. I will come down and I will become a man and I will live in a way that you cannot live and I will not, I will die and I shouldn't die. And that's Jesus. See, God doesn't say, um, it's all broken. You broke it. Good luck. He says, it's all broken. I will help you fix it. I will show you how it works. I will come down and save you. And that's the good news. That's how you become a new man. See, Jesus came down, lived on earth as God and man. By the way, that's why Paul's only a good missionary, right? Because the greatest missionary was Jesus. See, I don't know if you can comprehend a man being God. You can't. Okay, so pretend you can comprehend a God that actually holds together the earth like you're breathing right now and you didn't stop to think about it at all, right? Your brain is firing, synapses are happening, right? Around you, wind is blowing, wind is not blowing. Uh, the ocean is not crushing all of the land, but it's stopping at a certain point because the lunar cycle and... All these things are happening because God holds them together. The scripture tells us he holds them together and that God became man and, and Jesus came down to earth and took on humanity. He actually grew. God grew for the first time. That doesn't happen to God. He doesn't grow. He became a baby. He grew. Never at any point did he do anything other than glorify God in his life. He too was God. And he lived that life in a way that we never get right. We always glorify ourselves. It's our default since we first glorified ourselves is to glorify ourselves. And he never did. He glorified his father continually. He was after his father's will, and that's how he describes it. And his father's will was his. But in his humanity, even we see him going to the cross. And for a moment, that overwhelming, if there's any other way, but nevertheless, your will be done. And he goes to the cross, and he dies in a way that you will never experience. You, never, you don't see it. You don't see it anymore. Because not many of us go to war and be a part of that and see how horrible it is, right? You, you don't understand it. You watch movies. We make a movie about the cross. And it was worse. And then he goes into the grave, and here's the amazing part. Here's where the story gets crazy. Because we deserve to die. Because a holy God, who is nothing like us, is perfect. Now, he deserves the glory we glorify ourselves and so what waits for us is death and our death simply covers our death (laughs) that's it but see when christ died he didn't deserve to die he didn't need to die it would have been a really interesting thing had he had he not chosen the cross he could have lived as a man forever glorifying god sin was not a part of who he was because he was totally different so when he died 
He didn't stay there because death couldn't hold him like it holds all of us. And he rose again. Craziest thing, the resurrection. Historical data behind the resurrection. I know we can talk about it if you don't believe me. It's awesome. It's really crazy that there's historical data behind the event of the resurrection because none of us have been to a funeral and the guy pops up like, hey, what's up? I'm back. It doesn't happen unless you're God in the flesh. That's what Jesus was. And so when his blood spilled, unlike any other sacrifice that had ever been offered for sin, it was the perfect blood that we needed. And all the glory we had sought for ourselves was paid on the cross with the blood of Christ. Amen? Amen. So here's what communion is, all right? If you're used to maybe more of a Catholic service, it's not how it goes here. I'm not going to put anything in your mouth. I don't even feed my wife because she's not like that. She doesn't like the whole feeding thing, right? I'm not going to feed you, all right? In the back, you will find a table, a black 